Welcome to Chi Alpha After Hours. We're two of your hosts, Cassie and Christian, here to take a closer look at what it means to follow Jesus off the university campus. If you can't tell from the change to the intro, today's episode is a little different. We had the chance to interview Ken Huff, who currently serves as a world missionary in Cambodia. He shared about his experiences in the mission field and gave us some insight into how we can have a missionary mindset as well, since Jesus commissions all of his followers to make disciples wherever they go. We hope this time with Ken will bless you as much as it blessed us. So, hey, Ken. So it was so great hearing um, your message last night um, on Friday night, and you just shared a lot about your story and about how you ended up um, going to Cambodia and how it was like this long process of the Lord nurturing um, his call in you. And, um, you know, you talked a lot about um, being convicted about the idea that like you actually are believing people are going to go to hell, people are going to go to heaven, and there's this eternal reality. And um, I was wondering, how did you nurture your desire to see people come to know the Lord in the in that time uh, before going out into world missions? Yeah, so I don't know if I would call it exactly nurture, but that's okay. Um, the reality was it came quickly and strongly when my life was changed. Mm-hmm. And not only for eternity, but just for this life, that all of a sudden the stuff that I couldn't fulfill on my own, the kind of empty space in my heart was filled and there was a new hope and love and things like that. And so actually it was very strong when I got saved. It's more of keeping it sometimes for Christians and keeping that as you grow and you're just more used to having this new life, you're around Christians, you're doing things, it's easy to forget how much your life has changed and how important it is that you share with other people. Now, for me, I just started witnessing a lot, family, friends, others around, um, and continued to be in the Bible and praying. And for me, then it was just trying to minister to lots of people. I got involved with lots of young people is kind of how I did it. But the reality was I had to remind myself and still have to get out and about because it's easy to get in the Christianized world. Mm-hmm. And then you lose sight of all these people that haven't heard and don't know because your world's kind of small and closed in with just the Christian circle that you come used to. And the longer that you have had your salvation, the easier it is to forget what you were like before you found it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's interesting. I've been thinking like about how evangelism in a Christian life is like the is like one calling or it's it's a it's a calling to a group of people who never tell you that you're neglecting them. Like you're always surrounded by Christians who say they want more time or my family who wants more time or mm-hmm. my leisure activities that want more time. But a non-Christian they're never saying, oh, come, come share with me, you know, right. it, it, in a sense, it's like carving out space for the absent, you know, and. Yeah, yeah so we call it tyranny of the urgent sometimes to the, the urgent things, keep your attention, the family, your work and all that, where the important things are quiet. Mm-hmm. 
And so sometimes you have to just get away and think now what things are important. Yes, these things are urgent, but that's one thing good about all this COVID stuff is it gave me a lot more time to deal with important things and not just urgent because my life is often filled being a director of Assemblies of God with all sorts of what appear to be urgent things, meetings coming up, guests coming up, things like that. Well, now there's no guests or teams or things <laughs> coming in. Yeah. And so I've been able to work on other things that maybe are actually more important. Um, but yeah, the Cambodians were never going to say to anybody, hey, come tell us about Jesus. Right. Um, it's part of us knowing there's people that haven't heard, haven't been reached and going to those places. And, and again, what's interesting with me is I'd never had a call to Cambodians. People kind of think you must just love Cambodians. I'm like, mm -hmm. I love everybody. I loved sharing, especially in the US with people that are in foster care. Those were my favorite ones to invest in. People have done and out and stuff, but dude, I love Vietnamese people. I love Laos. I like people in America, mm -hmm. um, but this just happens to be the group of people that nobody hardly was going to and almost nobody had even heard the name before literally not even heard the historical name the cussing word they didn't even know how to put it in context when i used the word like i said on the one thing that they thought i was saying grandma endurance yesu let's go do you know grandma endurance that's exactly what it sounds like they're like yeah i know a lot of grandmas but i don't know grandma endurance. <laughs> Oh man, yeah. can you can you paint a picture for us of what the political history has looked like um, for those of us uh, who really don't know? <laughs> yeah, kind of quickly. Yeah, um, yeah. So Cambodia got caught. It was the strongest country in the area way back in the 900 to 12, 13 when Angkor and Angkor Wat and all that was the central stuff. But as time went on. Vietnam, which wasn't called Vietnam then, came further and further down the peninsula on one coast and Thailand grew stronger on the other. Mm -hmm. And pretty soon it was like Cambodia was this ping pong ball between these two big powers. And so they would align themselves with Thailand when Vietnam's coming in and they would align themselves with Vietnam when Thailand's coming in and wow. they were going to disappear pretty much like the Champa people they mm -hmm. lost all their land. There's still a people group that are Islamic in mm -hmm. Vietnam and Cambodia, but over time, just is what happens, they lost their land. Yeah. Um, so Cambodia's getting squeezed. And so Viet that is when the French who were already coming into Vietnam, some kind of were invited or asked to be a protector. Well, they got one good benefit out of it that France then protected their borders and kind of pushed them back out to where they'd been more recently, not way back to when they were big. So the French then, unfortunately, then colonized for 90 years. So yeah. in 53, with all the fighting with communism and wanting just freedom and nationalism in Vietnam, France couldn't fight in uh, also Cambodia. So they left and gave mm -hmm. the freedom up to kind of focus on Vietnam, which was more important to them and the ports and things like that. So they got their independence in 53. And okay. they were a pretty developed country, a good place, kind of called the Paris of the uh, Orient and things like that. Well, communism was still growing and growing in the area. And unfortunately, in a lot of these countries and around the world too, corruption 
and corrupt leaders makes it so the people hate their leaders. Yeah. With Vietnam, that was true. And Cambodia wasn't as much because they had the king um, and things like that. But the Vietnam War was raging and it was pushing into Cambodia because the Ho Chi Minh Trail runs through Cambodia. Right. And so there became this anti-Vietnamese back to that. That's who Cambodia hates. Mm. We don't really know racism except in small pockets in the States. Let me tell you, out here, most Cambodians hate Vietnamese. Most Vietnamese hate Chinese. It's kind of an interesting kind of thing. Wow. But this yeah. anti-Vietnamese, well, when the king left, he was starting to side more with the north of Vietnam because he knew the communists had already won. The South was already, they hated their leaders. They hated mm -hmm. their leaders in South Vietnam. And so he left and there was a coup. And so in 1970, a civil war started. Mm -hmm. um, America kind of backed this new coup group, the General Lam No. And that civil war went on for five years, but the U.S. was wanting to get disengaged. And when they did, that left that group with hardly anything because they were corrupt too. Yeah. And so this group called the Cambodian Reds, the Khmer Rouge, grew stronger and stronger. And really, they were just people following Mao Zedong and his little red book. That's why they're called the Khmer Rouge, the Red Cambodians, where Vietnam is more white, blue, following Russia. Russia mm. and China didn't like each other either and were at odds mm. over what communism should look like. Mm. So in 1975, the Khmer Rouge took over the whole country. And that's when they went back to what we call the year zero. Everything, we're getting rid of anything modern, anything education. We're just well, going to be great rice farmers like we were back in Angkor times, and we're going to be prosperous. And they weren't the devil. People think because they killed somebody in this, that they really thought it. Just like a lot of American students think socialism and kind of this cool thing, that was the cool thing in Europe at the time. All these ones for the Khmer Rouge were studying in Paris. They're teachers, they're educators. And they came back with this grand idea yeah. that would help the masses. And you don't blame the poor people for hating the rich because the rich just really super oppressed them. So that yeah. went on. Well, in 1979 going in, Vietnam was tired of the Khmer Rouge that hated Vietnamese killing people on the borders and stuff. And they blitzkrieged in with the help of some of the Cambodians who had fled and with the help of the Russians. And they took it over. And mm -hmm. so then for the next 11, 10 years, Vietnam was the one that was in charge, really, of Cambodia. Mm. Well, when the Soviet Union fell apart, that means Vietnam lost its supporting. And right. they knew if they wanted to advance, that they needed to start to engage with both China, because China was with Cambodia and against mm -hmm. Vietnam. And China and the U.S. were keeping the Khmer Rouge in the U.N. seat still. Yeah. They knew oh, that wow. if they wanted to develop, they needed to change too and start to engage with the U.S. and with China because Russia fell apart and became a poor country. And so that's when things started to change. U.N. forces came in. They held elections. It's hard to describe what it's here. They're not used to a multi-party kind of political system. Yeah. And we need more parties probably in the U.S. I'm kind of yeah, saying that's right. that too because there's not ever good <laughs> yeah. choices these days. So um, that's kind of what happened. But really, there's still a one party system, even though there's democracy, they let other groups kind of do it. But okay. they are very open market, a lot of investment. Um, Hun Sen, try, the leader, tries to balance things by being friends with everybody, but not really ticking anybody off too much as they do it. And Cambodia has really started to develop in a lot of ways. 
-hmm. it's still run more like what we would think Vietnam or something like that might be. Um, but that's kind of the system right now. It's, it's kind of a, I don't want to say dictatorship, but a to tell it, it's a leader, one party kind of system yeah. with the trappings of democracy. Okay. Wow. Kind of so a little more stability for the last 20, 30 years, relatively? Since probably 92, but the real fighting stopped and the real stability started in 98. Okay. Because when the UN did it, they tried to set up this multi-party and it ended up with two prime ministers that didn't like each other and both wanted to be the one party. Oof. Well, they fought it out in 97 and the current prime minister's people won. And okay. that's when stability started. He confiscated guns. He made a deal with the Khmer Rouge who were still fighting from the jungles. They Whoa. had been being supported by America, China, Thailand to fight against the Vietnamese coming further in and into Thailand and other places. So they say at least. And so he made a deal with the Khmer Rouge soldiers that were still left fighting and they quit fighting. Some became part of the government forces and that's when stability started. And that's right about when I got here. That was November of 98. I got here January of 99. You still couldn't go out after dark much. It was just not good. You didn't travel around the country yet, but within, by the end of 99, you could be out more, you could travel more. I could go around the country. Uh, they started to pave some of the roads and things. So really, I would say the 2000, the push for everybody and tourists to come to Cambodia in 2000 and a few other things, that's when real probably stability started mm. in the country. And okay. so it's, it's dude, 50% of the people were chronically malnourished when I got here. Wow. And now it's down to probably 15% or something like that. And people are just much better off now with the COVID stuff we'll see. And again, not COVID, the results of COVID restrictions mm -hmm. in developed countries has thrown a lot of people back into poverty here because of factory jobs, because of tourism and different things like that. So we've kind of dropped back because of the results. I like to say the results of COVID restrictions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, you talked about that last night, even that when you got there in, you know, 99, you said? 99, January 99. Um, that the the estimation was that there was somewhere between 200 to 500 Christians? Was no, that... That, was, that would have been in 1990 when the Vietnamese, because the Vietnamese asked, actually probably persecuted Christians as much or more than the Khmer Rouge. And yeah. so there were probably two to 400 and they weren't allowed to have any churches and things under Vietnamese rule. So okay. it was in that time when the Vietnamese withdrew and the UN came that they started finding each other more and they assumed that there were two to 500. Now, when I got here, the gospel had been coming in since 91. You weren't allowed to do Christian stuff until after the elections, 92, 93, but they were, of course, they were sharing their faith and making disciples yeah. one by one. Yeah. The church was growing, but it was still real small. And the reality was, even though the church was growing some, most people, because you, almost nobody left their villages when I got here. Almost mm -hmm. nobody I met had been more than 12 kilometers, about eight miles from their home. Wow. It's just like, it was unbelievable that, and they'd never seen a map, most of them. So they didn't even know really what Phnom Penh, almost nobody been to Siem Rip or the Angkor Wat and stuff. And yeah. so really when I traveled around then almost nobody, probably 95% of the people or more in the country would not have recognized 
even the historical name of Christ, not who he was, what he came to do. And the ones who did had the weirdest view yeah. of yeah. who he was and what he taught. Yeah. Whoa, that's so crazy. And, and so um, if you were to paint a picture of what, you know, kind of like what the church looks like now in Cambodia, like what would you, how would you paint that picture? So what I say to people is it's wide, but shallow. Hmm. So lots of people have become believers. Again, it's still a small percentage of the overall country, but compared to where it was with hundreds to probably 250, 300,000 that are believers now, wow. it's growing. Yeah. The church is growing more than probably most places in the world, but it's still because more discipleship. Mm-hmm. That's what teams, that's what short-termers can't really do. It's people that live and learn language, invest and do. And now we're trusting more that Cambodians are going to do it for Cambodians, but it just takes time. Mm-hmm. When you first learn theology, when you're first generation, it gets in your head, but not quite in your heart. And so it doesn't quite offend you when there's doctrinal errors or different things or a little off kind of stuff. Yeah. And because we have a lot of people that what I would consider Christian criminals that they've learned that you can make good money by being a Christian and working with foreigners. Well, that's kind (laughs) of helped keep the level at like this of real depth within the church. Um, Almost all of our churches are still first generation. The pastor that started it is still the pastor. And so often they haven't developed what we would call elders and deacons and things like that to spread it out um, because of the low education for 30 years, almost nobody got to go to school. Wow. Okay. So there's that generation that are mostly the leaders now that never got to really go to school. Mm-hmm. So though they come and study and we try to teach them and we try to invest, sometimes they just don't get, and just imagine the trauma of what all these people went through during the Khmer Rouge and the times yeah. after they couldn't think, you know, a day in advance, hardly. They just wanted to survive today. And when you're in a survival mode, it's hard. To... So what we found is a lot of those that became the early leaders are not very good at taking it in and then giving it to others. Mm-hmm. And okay. that's the big step is to do the Timothy thing that what you've received from us before, in front of many witnesses, teach to faithful people with ability to teach others. And so that's what we really need is more depth plus materials. And even at Bible school, what do we give them to read? So they come and we teach them and stuff, but there's very few written materials in Cambodia. They're getting a few things translated now, but there's just, I mean, just think of English and oh, way too many new books. (laughs) And why do we need so many notebooks? Let's read the (laughs) classics, you know, but um so that's part of it. It's so I would call it very, it's wide and growing mm-hmm. and it's just shallow. But this is one of the great things is the ones that are coming to the Christ, maybe the most these days are university students. Oh, Woo-hoo. praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Yeah. And so they then are sharper and they're getting trained. I was at a meeting out in a far place towards Vietnam border where we don't have a lot of things. And we were having a leaders meeting and there's like five kind of older guys with their wives and stuff at the meeting that I don't know. 
And that's not often because I try to get out and about. That's a good thing about being single. I can run around and spend lots of time out with people. Uh, and yeah. nobody gets mad at me. Yeah. Um, nobody demands my time. That's right. Nobody's... I'm out there. And so we don't like stealing sheep because there's too many. And that's one of the problems with the church, too, is there's so many people coming. And a lot of countries give such expectations to their missionaries to have a church within mm-hmm. a year or two. Um, that they just grab up other people's sheep. They give stuff away. Um, this is an unfortunate problem too. You give stuff away to get everybody to come to your place. Yeah. So we don't want to steal sheep. So I asked each one of these people, how is it that you became a Christian? How is it that you're becoming a leader and you're wanting to be at our leader meeting? Yeah. Every single one of them separately said to me, well, my son or daughter went to Phnom Penh. That's where most of the universities are. Mm-hmm. And while they're in Phnom Penh, they became a follower of Jesus, a believer in Jesus. Well, they would go oh. home because Cambodia, you go home on holidays, special mm-hmm. holidays. And so they would go home and they started sharing with their families and they yes. led before the parents would persecute. Now more are open and the kids led their parents to Christ and started yeah. each time they're home sharing with them. Yeah. Well, now they want to be the leader of this Jesus place in their village. Oh. And so they were coming to the meetings. And so that's kind of an awesome thing that's starting yeah. to happen as more and more university. And I believe as our goal is to plant a mother church in each provincial capital, 26 of them, city mm-hmm. or capital within there, that it's going to be people that come to university, that get saved, get discipled in their home church, that have a passion, that then go back to their home provinces because Cambodians don't trust people they don't know in general. And so if you're from one province going into another, they're like, you're just a hireling of foreigners. That's what you're here for. You don't have family connections. You don't have history connections, but ones that are university students, they'll have education, ability to work because almost no pastor is going to get paid here. You're lucky to get anything from your church, except a lot of burdens. (laughs) So, um, They'll have ability to work, but then they live there. They know people and to start the churches. So pray for that. That's one of the big things I really believe. The university students that are coming, that they'll finish university, they'll get jobs, they'll do things, and that they'll be the ones who go back to their own places where they have relationships and start the church. Mm -hmm. That's great. Oh, that's so good. Um, That's so good to hear. Can I just, I just need to say, like, I just need to pull out a couple things you said. One... One thing that you said, and I think this is like important for us, you know, um, we have a saying in Chi, in Chi Alpha when we talk to our students about reaching others, we say um, that you need to look for either lost sheep or sheep without a shepherd. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you talked about how um, in Cambodia, there's this pressure for people to want to go ahead and like... Um, take other people's sheep because they want to feel successful. Yeah. Um, but ultimately like that, that stress to, or that stress or that discomfort of, um, of reaching out and not, and not being popular, but having to do that hard work of having people reach, um, having to teach people about the Lord. Um, that's really hard, but that's a, a really necessary step to do in the mission of God. Um, one thing I noticed when we got when we came out was that the average age in the church had to be 14 years old or I mean, it was it was so young. The church is very young. There's some old wow. widows 
a few in between, and then everybody else is pretty much 18 and under. Now, the rural churches like you saw are even more so because what happens? Everybody, when they graduate now that can, leaves the village hmm. uh, because they don't stay to be rice farmers. They don't need as many kids to do that as they once did. And so they all the universities are in provincial capitals and almost all are in Phnom Penh. And so that's why we're retraining worship leaders, this and that, every couple of years, because the key leaders are often the 17 and 18 year olds. And they're all young, so they leave. Yeah, correct. Wow. But that, that then strengthens, if we can keep them, it strengthens the Phnom Penh churches. Right. Yeah. That's Praise true. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. So you've mentioned that evangelism's a real need and helping the church grow deeper rather than wide and shallow. Yeah. So what does your life look like on a daily basis as a missionary? So I would ask back, what's a pastor's life look like? It all depends on what's going on. If I have a team, then you're with the team the whole time. Um, if I have meetings or traveling to the provinces, but in general, it's gonna have to be more not day to day it's more week to week or what are key things. And so um, part of what I do is run around the country to see pastors and just encourage and be out there um, where they're at, speak in their churches and things like that. But other times, so I'll teach at the Bible school. And when I teach at the Bible school, it's all day, you know, five days a week from morning till night because we do block classes. Okay. And so I would do four and a half hours of teaching in one oh. day for two or three weeks. And then, cause you got to grade, you got to do tests, you got to look at papers, all that kind of stuff too. Mm -hmm. um, and so then I get out to our schools just to hang out sometimes and be with staff. And so part of it, it's dealing with staff because we have teen challenge, we have school projects, different things like that as well. Um, if you're gonna ask day to day, it might be emails and messenger at least an hour a day, maybe 45 minutes in the morning and 30 in the afternoon kind of things. Yeah. But I do do a lot of meetings. I'm on the board for the Bible Society of Cambodia. I'm on the board for the Bible School. I'm on the board for Teen Challenge. And the reality is, as time moves on, what should happen is evangelism is much more in the hands almost exclusively now, except in new areas, in the hands of Cambodians. Mm -hmm. That's we are great. more spending time teaching. And so we have Christian Life program, which is a two-day cut. It's 16 hours. Courses, we have 18 of those now translated to Khmer, where we try to go out to where they're at instead of them coming here, trying to help with our leaders that are in those rural churches and places like that. And so discipleship and investing is probably... And then when I have free time, I play Settlers of Catan with all the university students that <laughs> love how to play Settlers of Catan, too. Yes. That's awesome. Um, one thing I noticed when, when we came out was, you know, there were so many people that would be maybe, you know, like early 20s, late teens. And you would talk, you would like, oh, this is my daughter and this is my other daughter, like, because... They, they, there was an orphanage that you that you were helped with. I, I, I wasn't totally clear on how all that worked, but maybe. So, in short, the government asked us to do a number of things in 1990, 91, when a Assemblies of God came to Cambodia, mm -hmm. and one was to start two orphanages. One ended up shutting down about seven years after it started, but one down in a place called Sienukville, 
at its high point had 150 kids or so in it. Well, we have directors down at it, but I'm a single guy, this and that. So like on holidays, stuff, I like the people that were directors. I like bugging the kids. I wanted to practice my Khmer. <laughs> so yeah. I started going down and hanging out. And that's not, that's back when there wasn't much traffic here. So mm -hmm. it was pretty easy to get down there and nice and it's beaches and nice little $3 Western restaurants kind of things. Uh -huh. <laughs> so I built relationships over time. Well, those kids started getting older and started graduating and the director wanted to help them get college education. So we started a student house in Phnom Penh because that's where all the universities were. Well, in the meantime, Mike, when the directors would go home on their itineration, I would kind of oversee it some. And so I knew the kids even more. Well, when the directors decided to leave, it kind of came to me, fell to me relationally. I knew it to be in charge of that student house. And I put it right next to my house, my place I lived was the two student houses. So all the students, when they graduate from the orphanage would come live at that student house. Cool. So I'm helping them go to college. I'm spending time with them. I'm doing devotions on Sunday nights, special events. I'm playing Settlers of Catan. Yeah. With Cambodia, family is important. And a wedding is not about the bride and groom. Okay, they think that's kind of selfish the way we do things and stuff yeah. it's about the family it's more important the parents are just as important really mm -hmm. in a cambodian wedding as the kids and a lot of the big mm -hmm. event stuff is more for the parents and their pride and their friends than it is for the bride yeah. and groom well how do you get married if you don't have parents yeah, well. yeah and so what started to happen was because of the close relationship i have with them they would ask me to be their father Oh. during the wedding and that's why i joke now everybody this yeah. is a joke yeah when right. say i have 15 ex-wives <laughs> have been my wife more than a few times because oh, you man. can't have a single dad in the mm. wedding you got to have a mom too yeah. so sometimes it was an aunt that they knew it oh. was a teacher it was one of the girl missionaries lady missionaries and so i have been a part of their weddings Unfortunately, parts of some of the funerals of those who died from there, and mm -hmm. so with all the others, and that's why. And plus, in Cambodia, you don't call people by name all that much. You call them by position in the family. So mm -hmm. you heard this word all the time with me, kmui, 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 which just means niece or nephew. Mm -hmm. And okay. so that's what I call most. But the ones that I've been their father in the wedding sometimes for calling them my daughter or okay. son or something like that because I was the parent in the yeah. wedding. Okay. Wow. That's so fun. Wow. Yeah. And so there's just a ton of human resources. You know, they've finished college. They're doing well. Not all of them. Just like any kids and families, some make bad choices. But boy, a lot of them are leaders in their churches. And two of them are doctors now. Mm -hmm. uh, you got engineer. You got lots of teachers, lots of teachers from it. <coughs> Uh, just a lot of different things. Yeah. I mean, I think I hear in that, like, short-term missions have their place, but the longevity of you being there and yeah. being there for, you know, generations of these students who have come through this orphanage and now yeah. <laughs> on. Long-term. Just really like powerful. in youth ministry, other ministry, there's incredible benefits to long-term relationship. Mm -hmm. So back to, I told you, the Mormons, it's great. Boy, they give a year or two of their life and come. And, but the church never grows real strong here because why they're only here a year and a half and then they're gone mm -hmm. there's no long term and the old p older people they send to oversee them 
are like, boy, the worst ugly American. They just don't really know culture and language because they're older and it's harder to learn. They're just here to oversee the students that come out. And so long-term relationship, dude, I tell Cambodians, they go, you speak a lot of Cambodian. I go, I should, I probably should be a lot better. I've been in Cambodia longer than you have. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Which true. is true. Of course, I still sound a whole lot better than I do. Yeah, that's right. That's I have been in Cambodia and seen more. I have different perspective. I run around mm -hmm. the country than most of the younger Cambodians. Yeah. Yeah, well. yeah, that's true. What are some stories? Man, I think you've shared a lot of the, the long-term effects of you being there and the relationships you've had, but are there a couple of stories that stand out? from you and your time there? Uh, I'm not sure which stories you want. <laughs> uh, some Either of way. the things to me that are most important aren't going to be like a leading one person to Christ kind of thing. Again, mm -hmm. a lot of the Cambodians do that because then they continue the relationship. But mm -hmm. some of mine would be like, I had been a youth pastor. And so we tried to reach West Albany and South Albany and the junior highs that were the middle schools that were in Albany. Mm -hmm. And one of the things we did was Book of Hope distributions where the students were set up so they could give it out. But I knew the Book of Hope was kind of like a magazine form where it's the gospel. It's just the word of God mostly, but in a chronological order, easier to read, not duplicating anything. So when I got here, I knew people that were working with Book of Hope for Asia that are fellow missionaries that are in Philippines and doing youth ministry in Chi Alpha, also yeah. Ty and Cena Silva, which you may have heard about stuff. They've done a ton of Chi Alpha stuff. Um, oh. But I started working with them and with Bible Society to get it done in Cambodia because nobody had heard about Jesus. Hmm. And when yeah. they were, like I said, they're confused. Well, what an awesome thing if they could read for themselves. I knew if they could read for themselves, what Jesus taught, who he was, that they'd love him. Yeah. I mean, he was on the side of the poor. He was on the side of the down and out. You don't have to work to earn your salvation. He did it for you and stuff. So we worked on it and got it done. It was a lot of work, but I noticed the one girl that was already at 16 when I met her, the leader in her church, capable, <sighs> passionate. So just felt like God was saying, ask her, ask her. Well, she started helping then. And over time, she just did it. I mean, I don't have to do anything. And we have been able to give with Book of Hope in public schools, mostly like 1.2 million copies out to young people in the country. And some of those stories, we had one guy that later on was at a pastor's meeting that heard us talking about Book of Hope. And he's like, I want to tell you my story. He was ready to kill himself. Wow. When his kids came home with one of those books and it just kept catching his eye, your book of hope, your hope in Camaris, kind of what it says. Mm -hmm. And he would pick it up that it made him mad because it's this Jesus guy, but then he'd pick it up and look and it started to change his life. Mm -hmm. Well, then they had to move and all that, but he became a Christian and then a leader and was now a pastor. Wow. And what saved his life was the hope that he found through that book of hope that went home. Yeah. But what I want to say is this girl has just become an incredible leader um, for Cambodia, countries around. When missionaries say, well, we want to come and do children's ministry. I'm like, eh, I don't really need you to because ours are better than you guys. And they speak the language. And that's yeah. the reality. 
Teaching and discipleship, maybe, yes. But as far as children's teaching on ministry and stuff, dude, just to watch her over this 21 years now, she's would be 37 now. Wow. Um, and just incredible leader. And so it's those kind of stories mm-hmm. um, that now are reaching one of our boys from the orphanage and just watching him blossom and grow and now is the national youth director uh, for the wow. country. One of our girls that we invested just is just so capable and she's the secretary, but you know what it is with assistants or secretaries, they do more work than the bosses often. Yeah. <laughs> A girl, she's the secretary for the National Assemblies of God of Cambodia and has been for some time. Yeah. Um, there's just a lot of other stories of people that have really developed and are doing one of our boys, he became so capable at architecture building without even hardly, I mean, he went to university that he has been asked to help with the building of a large international school with a hospital Whoa. ministry, Whoa. Um, with a bigger churches or two. And so, yeah. but one of my highlights these days is not about Cambodians. It's about that God is calling people from all sorts of countries. If a country matures in Christ, they should start sending people. And so one of my funds is that as a guy that helped run the short-term missions for Oregon, Mm -hmm. I went to Bolivia, I went to El Salvador, I went to Mexico. Well, who are my new missionaries here now? I've got young missionaries that are passionate that are going to go to these provincial capitals where we don't have anybody yet that will be doing evangelism from El Salvador, three units from Bolivia, from Ecuador, Mm. from these different developing world countries that are just from Mexico now. Mm-hmm. And so it's fun to watch what God's doing around the world. Now, this may sound bad because Americans so think that you got to do poverty reduction with church work, mm-hmm. that there's, mm. we've gotten a lost sight and made the priority social justice instead of transformation through the gospel that will then help to transform justice in its own society. But mm. it's interesting. These missionaries don't come with big budgets. Hmm. And so they just come with faith and with the word and want to go do it. And that's just awesome. We kind of stymied the churches here when we bring in our rural development. And of course, one of the worst things that happened long-term in Cambodia was microfinance, which sounds really good to Americans and others, but just really ruins people in the end and has become a tough thing out here. But just that said, so one of my greatest things now is watching these young, passionate missionaries from, I don't know what they call it now, I'm not very politically correct, but the developing world that are now reaching and teaching and doing their learning language and they fit in and they're willing to go, honestly, to provincial capitals that are smaller and rural that our white ones Mm -hmm. can't really go to. Oh, wow. It's just too big a jump. Does that mean mm-hmm. for somebody yeah. and for kids and things? But for our developing world missionaries, it's like home in a way. And they're yeah, just well. excited about going. So That's oh, great. Praise the Lord. Yes. Um, <laughs> hey, just um, just one one closing question for you here, Ken, is um, say, say a student is interested in like thinking about, you know, doing how you did and that saying, hey, I want to go where nobody's heard the name of Jesus. I want to, I want to go to a country like Cambodia or, um, and that's, and they want to prepare themselves to do that. Um, what would you want them to like know, pray, or how would you want them to prepare ahead of time? So the number one thing is what a man of God, Earl book 
told me he used to be Albany's pastor and then was the general soup in Oregon. He said, have a vision for the future, but be used where you're at now. Hmm. Dude, when I was at Evangel, I met so many that said, I'm going to be a missionary in Russia. I'm going to be a missionary in this and that. And they weren't doing ministry. Yeah, It's not like all of a sudden you turn it on and you're going to be a person that can do ministry. And so you got to be used where you're at now. What are you doing now? Are you reaching people now? Are you discipling people now? Are you serving now? And that then, as you're faithful and small, will grow you into other things. The other thing is to make sure you're learning the Word of God even more. Hmm. And so for me, it was doing it through uh, global university and some of those kind of things, mm-hmm. plus reading my Bible a ton. And so you got to do steps and grow. But the most important thing to me is, what are you doing now? We've had people that volunteer and come out here. And I'm like, so what ministry were you doing before you came? And as you listen, it's like, how in the world did you even get out here if you weren't doing much back there? And pretty soon they're gone Hmm. because they don't know how to do ministry. Yeah. Yeah. And so for me, the biggest thing is, for me, it was step, step, and it took like 14 years, but it was awesome getting to minister to young people and be involved in all that kind of stuff. So I had the vision that someday I wanted to go, but I was really wanted to be used for his act. And so read things too, that will help you see big picture because your world in America of what missions is, is so warped right now. Hmm. Again, even our Bible schools, it's social justice, it's rescuing people. And it's like, how about the gospel will change them and they'll transform people? How about keeping people out of stuff before they get into it? Because we've done education things like that. And so the big thing is be used where you're at now, continue to learn the word of God and read a bunch of stuff so that you can understand more of the big picture. And dude, if you can learn a language, because even if it's not the language you end up doing, it will be helpful. Those that have learned another language are much easier in learning another language when they get here too. I'm just so sorry. Those things, if I could go back in my life, but I'm from an era that you didn't have to study language. And even if you did, it was a book thing just to get a grade in school and not really learning much. Go on some short-term things too. Mm -hmm. That helps expand and gives you a better idea of what it's going to be. And so short-term does not give you all because you see and put your phone away when you come on the short-term ones. The problem we're having now is people used to disconnect from home and so therefore connect much more when they were here mm-hmm. so many stay too connected they're talking to their girlfriend they're talking to their parents every night and this and that and they don't really connect with people here as much and with mm-hmm. what's going on yeah but it certainly will expand your horizons your ability to pray and stuff if you can come and if you can then once you've done if you really want to do it try to do a little longer one a two-month, a three-month kind of thing. Uh, Mm -hmm. A lot of times these days, people that want to be full-time missionaries start out with doing a missionary associate for a year or two and then go back and then become full-time appointed missionaries too. Let's end there. Ken, thank you so much for making time in your schedule to join us today. If you're out there listening, we hope that that has broadened your perspective on missions. Feel free to email us with comments, questions, or topic suggestions at social at OregonStateXA.com or reach out to one of us in person. We would love to talk to you about this. Have a great week, and remember, 
The best way to prepare for missions is by doing ministry now.